Hey, let's just lift up the Lord. God, you are awesome, Lord. We thank you for not putting more on us than we can bear. God, thank you for strengthening our back, Lord, to carry the loads you may require us to carry, Lord God. Lord, I'm praying that your word do a work in my brothers and sisters, God, as you've been challenging me just all this week, God, and especially last night and yesterday, Lord. And uh, this is a big challenge, God. You're calling for your disciples to, to lead and, and, to, and to live, Lord God. And we know it's only by your grace, God. So strengthen us to carry out this word, this imperative, God, to love our enemies, Lord Jesus. God, help us to live this thing. God, it is you we love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, my brothers and sisters, we're about to get to the end of chapter five. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount, chapter five. We're getting there. We're making progress. Uh, this word has been good. We are going to look at verses 43 through 48. A lot of verses today. Uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter five, verses 43 through 48. My brother Fernando asked for a title, and today, if you had, we had to title this, I would call it No Exemptions, Love Your Enemies. It's no exemptions, no loopholes in this text. Verses 43 through 48. No exemptions. Love your enemies. No loopholes. I don't care if you got the best New York attorney that can go through and find all of the legal loopholes. You cannot find any loopholes in the text that we're looking at today. It is what it is. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, I'm like, God, really? But it's, there's no exemptions. No exemptions. Oh, man. So uh, today we're getting to the end of Jesus's his compare and contrast statements, you know, the, but I say to you, where he specifically addresses teachings, uh, that has been taught or traditions that people are, are teaching the people of that day. Some of the things that they frankly just got flat out wrong. And, and Jesus is correcting some of those teachings and he's showing the truth of what the Lord meant when he gave some of these laws and commandments in the Old Testament. And so we're coming at the end of Jesus making this compare in contrast, if you were, of his teaching, of Jesus' teaching, specifically to that of the Pharisees. And so I hope that this has challenged us to examine our own traditions and teachings, our own things that maybe we have picked up along the way. Maybe we picked them up from our parents, or, or maybe we picked them up from the different churches that we are part of. We all have different tradi- tra- traditions and teachings that we have that we hold to dogmatically that can't line up with scripture and so i hope that that's what we've been getting challenged by as we see jesus he's challenging their interpretation their dogmatic teaching and he's bringing the truth to light so i i hope that that is challenging you as well to examine the teachings that you hold to to ask yourself, is this teaching something that I could hold on or assert dogmatically? Is this something that I could go to the grave with? As some of you know, with me personally, uh, uh, some of you have heard this before. Some of the things that I had to repent of was my judgmental attitude on believers who I seen take a sip of wine or alcohol. As I told you before, I would so judge that brother or sister if he had a sip. I would so judge him. I would say he, that person was weak. 
they weren't maybe fully full of the Holy Spirit that they needed, that it was a, a weakness. But guess what? I didn't have the scriptural support to back that. That was just my own unction, my own what I what I wanted. And, and sure, I could go and try to twist some scriptures and to, to support my position. But if I did that, I would be doing exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. So I had to repent of that and, and not hold my brother or sister uh, or look at them in that way because they did something that maybe I don't do and that I'm not really an advocate of. But I can't go to the scriptures and say that you are a sinner now because she took a sip of that. I, I can't do that with the scripture. Um, another thing that I had to change that a, a teaching that I, I kind of came up, not came up with that I was taught, I guess you would say, was that um, only a pastor can do baptism. I thought in order for a person to be baptized, it has to be done by a pastor. It has to be the man of God, if you will. It has to be the the elder. But thank God to Pastor Brian, who helped me to see things a little bit different uh, when we were having some of our early, early on discussions. And uh, just looking at the Great Commission, and it doesn't call for that. But Jesus is calling for disciples to baptize disciples. So it's not necessarily the, the pastor, but it is the disciple, the true disciple of Jesus that could do those things. You can even go to our brother, the Apostle Paul. Remember who, who baptized Paul? Was it another apostle? Was it some type of prophet? No, it was Ananias. It was just a regular old disciple who baptized the greatest apostle, the greatest preacher in the scriptures outside of Christ, obviously. Uh, that's who baptized the apostle Paul. Or if you go to just Jesus and his disciples early on in this ministry, if you remember, um, it was in John four where, where John the Baptist, uh, some of those disciples, they were, and it was the, the uh, disciples of the Pharisees, they were wondering, like, hold on, this guy Jesus is always over here baptizing more people than you are, John the Baptist. You're baptizing people, but he's baptizing way more people than you were. And the text tells us that it wasn't Jesus himself baptizing, but it was his disciples baptizing other disciples. So we see that early on in Jesus' ministry, Remember, these disciples that were baptizing other disciples, they were not just these heavy spiritual heavyweights. They were not the, the Peter of, of, of first Peter. They, it wasn't them. These were baby Christians, if you will. Disciples that still kind of bickered with one another. That, that is the person, or that was the, the people who were baptizing disciples. It wasn't the spiritual heavyweights that we make it to be. So I'll say that to say that. We have to examine ourselves when it comes to the text. We have to examine our traditions, our teachings to make sure is this lining up with scripture? Is this um, uh, conflicting with scripture? How does this line up with the word of God? We, we must know those things so that we don't go around dogmatically creating our own faith, our own gospel and holding other people accountable to it because we can do that sometimes. So with our, with our text today, let's, let's read verses 43 through 48, Matthew chapter 5. And the text reads, You have heard that it was said, you shall, not, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what Jesus is saying. You ought to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So now Jesus starts off with saying, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Now, loving your neighbor is true. That's in the scriptures. That that's that's word. That is that is true. They they got that part. You should love your neighbors. That's Leviticus nineteen eighteen. You should love your neighbors. That is the scripture. That is the law that we should love our neighbors. But the hate your enemy portion, that's not in the scriptures. That's not in the Old Testament. That's not in the law that you should hate your enemies. And that is what Jesus is coming after. There, that's not the teaching of God. That is not the te- teaching of Old Testament scripture. Most commentators say that the, the teachers, when they, when they came with this, this hatred and enemy, they were saying that the reason they said this, that, that they were making an inference. They were thinking, well, if the law commanded that we should love our neighbor, then we can infer that if he says you should love your neighbor, then we should hate our enemy. See, they were inferring from the Old Testament. And they took that and created their own tradition. They t- took that and created their own teaching that you should hate your enemy. But that's not found in the text. That's not uh, commanded in scripture. But if we're going to run with that, if we're going to run with hating your enemy and loving your neighbor to a first century Israelite, who would your neighbor be? No, your neighbor would be a normal or another Israelite. That's what your neighbor would be. Another Israelite, that would, that, that is who your neighbor would be. Another person of your ethnicity, Israelite. Another brother of the same faith. That is who their neighbor would be. That is why Jesus told us about the Good Samaritan. And that's why he explained to us that your neighbor is anybody who you come in contact with. That's your neighbor because how they took it, my neighbor was only somebody that was Israel. And if they weren't Israel, then I didn't have to treat them favorably. But Jesus shows us with the Good Samaritan, know that it's whoever you come in contact with. That is your neighbor. It's not a person that is just of your same ethnicity, your same uh, 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 faith, or your same whatever. It's whoever you come in contact with, whoever there is that needs a need, and you can meet that need. That is your neighbor. It is not just the people of your same ethnicity. So if they thought that Israel was your neighbor, who do you believe they thought was their enemy then? Who would be their enemy? Anybody have any ideas who that would be? Their enemies would be Gentiles. More specifically, it would have been the Roman Gentiles, right? More specifically, their enemies, yes, they may have would have had like some personal squabbles with people of their own ethnicity, their own faith. Yes, they probably would have had some enemies there. But their ultimate enemy, if you would talk to a first century uh, Israelite Jewish person, their enemy would have been Rome. It would have been the Roman Gentiles. That is who their enemy would have been. So so think about when you read this text where Jesus said, you have heard that it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Try to read that text from the perspective of a first century Israelite. Think about this. You have been raised up by your mama, your grandpapa, your cousin, your nephew, that other dude that's your cousin's friend. You've been raised by everybody to know that the, the enemies are the Romans. 
They're the one that came and took over our land. They have occupied our, our nation, our city. They are the enemies. They have been brought up to believe that. The Romans were the enemies. That's why we have in uh, Acts chapter one. Remember, before Jesus was going to ascend, the the apostle they're they're asking Jesus, "Is are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now?" And see, they're they're ready for the kingdom to be restored. They they're ready for the old days, the Old Testament days, to come into the new. They're they're ready for the the Romans to be thrown out so that they can be back in power. So you can have this theocracy again that's running things. So they're they're asking Jesus before he's going to go up, Jesus. Are you going to restore the kingdom back to Israel? So their enemy would have been the Romans, the Roman Gentiles. And now you have this guy named Jesus coming over in here and saying, hey, I, I understand that you were taught to hate these folks over here, but you know what? You're really supposed to love them. Do you see how much of a shock to the system Jesus' teachings would have been during this period? I've been taught a certain thing. And now you're coming over here telling me that it's really the exact opposite of what I've kind of known things to be. You're you're changing my status quo here, Jesus. I, I can get the status quo. I know this is how things are. But now you're coming over here and you're changing the status quo. You're, you're changing what I've been taught. You're changing what I know. And, as, and if they were humans like we're humans, we don't like change, right? We don't like change we like things being as they are we like things being as as we've known them to be but jesus is coming over here and telling them no you have to love your enemies this was a major shock to the system this is the equivalent of 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 jesus going to a white supremacist rally and saying hey guys you ought to love all black people you see how big of a shock that would be? Or if, or if Jesus went to a Nation of Islam conference in the 1960s where they believed that white people were the devil. And imagine he went to them and said, you have to love white people. Or, or imagine if Jesus went to 1930s Germany and spoke at a Nazi rally and said, you need to love all Jewish people. They would be like, what? They're the enemy. Do you see how this, this teaching is, is a major shock to the system? You're telling me this is different from what I thought things were. This is a major change in what Jesus is saying here. This is not something that they are accustomed to. He is challenging them. You're saying Jesus ought to love my enemies, even these Romans? See, this is a, a big deal. And this is not just a big deal to a first century Israelite. This teaching of loving your enemies This is a big deal to anybody during this period. You know why? Because the Romans, they had the largest empire that this world has ever seen, stretching from India all the way to Europe. And guess what? They did not get that way by loving their enemies. They didn't have the greatest power in the world by loving their enemies. Alexander the Great, one of the greatest conquerors, guess what? He didn't conquer by loving his enemies. They conquered by destroying their enemies. So Jesus' teaching here is major. This is a major teaching. This is a hard teaching that Jesus is saying here, you ought to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Really, Jesus? See, if you're like me, when I read this text, I'm saying, okay, where is the exemption? Where is the loophole, Jesus? 
where's the fine print? I, I mean, I, I mean, truly, you can't mean that I should be loving a person that has abused me, Jesus. Or Jesus, you really can't mean that I should be loving a person that's done this harm to my family or my children. Jesus, they don't deserve love and mercy. I'm Jesus. I'm sure there's an exemption. There has to be an exemption in this text, Jesus. You, you, you tell me I have to love this person that hates me. This this person that thinks I'm dust and I'm nothing. Jesus, I'm sure that where is the exemption in this text, Jesus? That that is a thing that I'm asking as I study and read this text myself. I'm saying, Jesus, this can't be real. You you can't mean I have to really love people who've done wrong stuff to me, Jesus. There has to be an exemption. I'm sure, Jesus, you can't mean real love. You, you, you can't mean real love, Jesus, that I have to have for, for my enemies. You, you can't mean that I really have to pray for them. Jesus, surely you must mean that, that knockoff, that knockoff love. That is the love, Jesus. That, that, that must be it, Jesus, what you're talking about. It must be that knockoff love that you're talking about I should have for my enemies. That, that, that knockoff love that we use when we say, I love these ribs. You must be talking about that type of love or that, that knockoff love when we say, I, I love these shoes or I, I love my jacket or I love how I'm looking today or I love my shirt. Surely, Jesus, that is the, the love you're talking about. You must be talking about that fake love. Not, not the, the real stuff. Not, not the real love. You don't really expect me to really love my enemies, do you, Jesus? Huh. I think he does. Because in this text, when he says you ought to love your enemies, he's using the Greek word agapeo, or we've heard of agape love which is the highest form of love. See, the Greeks, they were, they were, their language was a lot more um, nuanced than ours. Because in our society, I can say, I love my dog, and turn around and say, I love my wife. Now, to most people, the two aren't equivalent. To some others, it may be, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, but we'll say, I love my dog. I love my kids. There, there's, but see, with the, with the Greeks, they, their, their language was so nuanced that they had categories of love. So they just wouldn't say love. They had different words. So if I said that I, I love my boy, when I say my boy, not my son, but my boy, like my friend, my dog, my, my homie, whoever, however you want to say it, my pal, if I want to use that type of love, I would say, uh, Philo, uh, Philo love. Like Philadelphia, remember? The city of brotherly love. That's where that root word is coming from. So they would use that word for love. Or if I, if I love my wife, they would use the word eros. Which means that romantic love. That's where the root word of, uh, erotic comes from. Eros. That's where that word is derived from. I would say, I would use that type of love to describe the love between maybe my, my wife. If I want to describe the love between uh, my brother and sister, I would use storage love. That's a different type of love. Just for, you know, your brother, your sister, your uh, siblings, you would use that type of love. But Jesus, or Matthew, he chooses to use the word agape. What Jesus is saying here, agape love. He uses the highest form of love. 
Agape love is that self-sacrificing love. It is a love of the will. It is a volitional love. It It is a love that is displayed in action. And Jesus said, it is this type of love that you ought to have for your enemy or to that person that is least deserving of your love. He said, it is that type of love that I want my disciples, those who are following me, who are entering to the kingdom of God. That is the type of love you should have for your enemies or those that are least deserving. So, so Jesus is not talking about that fake love where on the outside we look like we love a person by our actions, but inside we are hating it. We really don't want to do it. And we've all done that. We've all done that perfunctory good deed where on the outside it looks like we're really doing it, but on the inside we really don't want to do it. We're just going through the motion. We're just doing the action. We really actually hate doing it. We really don't want to do that. Jesus is not talking about that type of love, but he's talking about a true and real love. So if you remember last week, we talked about Romans 1220. You remember Romans 1220 In in Romans 1220, Jesus talks about how if your enemy is hungry, remember he said, feed them. If your enemy is hungry, give them food. He says, if you're in, or this is not, I'm sorry, not Jesus, but Paul said that Paul said, but he's quoting the old Testament. And so he said, if your if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him some food to drink. And said, so by doing that, you're like dumping coals on his head. But when you take that scripture and you line it up with Jesus and what he's saying here, that we ought to love our enemies, to have a agapeo love, that means that when we reach out that glass of water to our thirsty enemy, or when we reach out that plate of ribs or whatever food you like, chitlins, grits. I know I'm going all southern food today. It's just coming to my mind. So, he, But he's saying, though, when you reach out that water to your enemy, when you reach out that food to your, to your enemy, you actually have to truly have some concern for him. He's not just talking about this external deeds or these external efforts, but he's saying you actually, actually, um, actually have to have some type of feelings for him. Some type of compassion has to truly be there, even for a person that is least deserving of your compassion and mercy. See, th- if you've ever looked at First Corinthians thirteen three, I, I, I want to read that to you. What it says here, you know, First Corinthians thirteen. That's a, that's the text on love, right? Uh, if you want to go, let's turn there. Let's turn there. Since we're, First Corinthians thirteen. Yeah, sorry. Let me get the, the love chapter. And I want you to look at verses three. Look what Paul says here. He says, "We all here." This is Paul talking about love. This is the love chapter. He says, and if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, give possessions. Guess what? That's outward action, right? Can we all agree that's something outward that you do? He's not talking about nothing spiritual, but he's saying outward. He's saying, so if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, outward action, outward action. And he says this. And if I surrender my body, again, outward action, something that I'm actually doing outward. So outwardly, when I feed the poor, it looks like I'm loving. Outwardly, if I give my body, it looks like I'm sacrificing for something great. So if I'm doing the outward action, the outward thing, look what he says here. 
He says, if I surrender my body to be burned, well, here's the thing. He says, but do not have love. It profits me what? Nothing. So I can do the external acts. I can do the outward action. But if there's not really something going on in my heart, guess what? My love is not complete. It's not true love. It's the knockoff love. It's the external love. But in order for it to be real love, there has to be a true heart movement, something going on there, a true act of compassion. And now Jesus is saying we need to show that towards our enemies. Do you see this is a hard text? This is why this text was messing me up this weekend because Jesus is saying we need to do this to the least deserving of people in our life. Have a, 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 a true, true love. Like this is really hard believers. When you really look at this text, Jesus is really challenging people in that century and in ours. This is a hard thing to do to truly love somebody who's so undeserving. Who may have done something wrong to you, but Jesus said, no, I still want you to show this agape love towards them. This self-sacrificing love that I'm willing that I'm going to do for people that may not even be deserving. See, this is very difficult. See, yesterday I, w- I went to a baby shower. The whole family, we all went to a baby shower. Um, huge baby shower, food, music, games. And I'm like, it's kind of, it's, it's easier for me to have a goppy love for these folks, right? I know all of them. They're my friends. My daughter and my friend's daughter who's having a baby, they played on the same soccer team. I've been knowing them for, for a couple of years. It's easy to have a goppy love for them or it's easier. It's not easy to have a goppy love for anybody at all. So I don't want to say that like it's just easy, but it's easier to have it for people that we know, for friends, for people here in the church. It's much easier to have it for them, but when it comes to others, it's much harder. See, what Jesus is getting at, he's getting at that random guy that is pumping gas next to you. He's saying, we need to have self-sacrificing love for that guy, for the person that is in line with you at the grocery store. We need to have a self-sacrificing love for that person. See, what Jesus is saying is on a whole nother level. The person that's driving on the side of the road with you and you guys come to a red light who you may never meet again. He's talking about that person too. And it's not just the people that we know, but it's the people that maybe we don't know that we are supposed to have a true love for. But how can we do this? How can we have a self-sacrificing love for a stranger? Or specifically to a person that would make themselves our enemy. Naturally, we can't have a self-sacrificing heart for others. We can't do it. We can't have a self-sacrificing love for those who have necessarily wronged us or wronged others that we love naturally. You can only begin to have and see what self-sacrificing love is. It's when you encounter the gospel. And you realize that you too, you were an enemy of God yourself. And that person that you can't stand, that person that you would never want to show love to, you were that in God's eyes. See, that is the only way we can begin to show a love when we realize how broken and lost we were, how we were that enemy of God, how we were that person that we can't stand, that we said, I don't know if I can ever do that for this person. That is how we stood before God because of our sinful state. So you must realize that. 
when you're challenged by like, really, Jesus, you really want me to love those people? That's who we were in God's eyes. But God yet showed his love for us. Romans 5, 8 says that he didn't just say that he loves us, but he demonstrates his love. That means he, he shows us that he loved us. He, he had to prove it. He had to show us, I love you. It's not just something he said in his mind, but he actually demonstrates his love by giving his son to go on a cross for my sins and yours. That was a demonstration of his love. So you can't forget you have not always been saved. You, you used to act like a heathen just like the rest of them. You were living foul just like the rest of them. And if it wasn't for God's grace, you would spend eternity in hell. So you have to really think about this thing. If it wasn't for God's grace, who loved you and came and transformed you by the Holy Spirit, you would still be doing the same things that you were doing before. But while you were an enemy, he came and loved you and transformed you by his spirit. I think about uh my my former pastor, um not former pastor, I shouldn't say that. Uh the, the pastor that of the church that I was a part of before, um, Pastor Eugene Washington. He went to Mount Olive Missionary Baptist Church, and um he would have this saying sometimes in his preaching when it comes to transformation. He would say that many of us who profess to know Christ, talking about Christians, he would say, many of us who profess to know Christ have been transferred and not transformed. He says, because when you have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, there is a difference in your life. And so what I, what I want to do is I want to show you a couple of people in the scriptures that have been transformed so much by God that they were able to show agape love to the people that were least deserving so go with me to Acts chapter 7. I want you to look at Stephen or Stephen. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. If we look here, we have Stephen. He's preparing to, he's about to get stoned because of Jesus. This man is going to get stoned because of his testimony. And in the midst of rocks being thrown at his head. Have anybody seen the movie, The Stoning of Sarai M? It was, it was a movie that came out a few years ago. It was about a, all right, never mind, but it's a good movie. But I, I want you to understand when people are getting stoned, these are not little Rocks that you go to the lake and you skip with. These are boulders meant to kill you. Meant to bring and inflict harm on you. So Stephen is, is, he's catching rocks thrown at him. And he begins to pray for the people that are persecuting him. See, he's doing what Jesus has called us to do in Matthew 5.44 by praying for your enemies. Are people that would make themselves your enemy. He is beginning to pray. Look what he says in 59, Acts 7. He says, they went on stoning stuff, and as he called on the Lord, he's called on the Lord, look, and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, 
He cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Having said this, he fell asleep. He's praying for people that are persecuting him. He's praying for his enemy in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the storm, while it's hot outside, while it's going down, while the rocks are flowing. He's beginning to pray for people. And that's what Jesus is saying that we should be doing in Matthew 5, 44. Go back to your main text. See it with your eyes. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is what he was doing. He's living out the scripture. How is he able to do that? Because the spirit of Jesus is inside of him. Remember, Paul called the hope of glory to the Colossians. He said, it is the Messiah that is living inside of you because Jesus is living inside of Stephen. He is able to overcome as Jesus was able to overcome when hate was thrown his way. See, Jesus, by the spirit, was living inside of him. That is how he is able to overcome. That is how he is able to pray for his enemies in the midst of the storm. It is Christ Jesus through the spirit of God living inside of him. That is how he's able to overcome. See, what you must understand is, it's like this. Jesus, the true citizen of heaven, he, he comes down, he, he gives this teaching, he, he gives his teaching, and he not only gives his teaching, he lives his teaching, then he goes on a cross and he dies for our sin, and that those who begin to put their faith in him, he then comes and begins to reside in him, and he allows them to carry out all the things that he did while on earth. All of the obedience, all of the faithfulness to God. He is now working in us to live that thing out. Which means that you and I can take no credit in our successes and victories because it is Jesus working in us in the first place. So we can really take no credit. I love it. One of my favorite Christian hip-hop artists, you guys know I'm a Christian hip-hop fanatic, KB has this great line. He's talking about Christian rappers compared to secular rappers. He says, we are the only rappers that can take no credit for our success, but all the credit for our failures. He realizes that any glory that he gets or any credit that happens to him, he knows that it is all God. It is not him. It is not his ability. He gives all the glory to God. Another person who was not just transferred, just moving here and there, but was transformed by God to love their enemy was the Roman jailer. Anybody remember the Roman jailer with Paul and Silas? Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We have Paul and Silas there in Philippi. And they are being charged with, uh, with, uh, getting people to, uh, they were, they're being charged or accused of unlawful things. Things that is going against the Roman government. So they are essentially enemies of the state. And so because of that, they are thrown, they are beaten and thrown into prison. And the Roman jailer is charged with his life or to, he's charged to guard Paul and Silas with his life. So you have this Roman jailer who's guarding this so-called, these so-called enemies of the state, enemies of Rome. He's guarding them with his life. There's this huge earthquake happens. Uh, the, the spirit, I mean, uh, the, the bonds of, of Paul and Silas, they're, they're loosened. And so the, the Roman jailer comes running out thinking that they're going to escape. And Paul ends up sharing the gospel with this Roman, uh, jailer. And this Roman is so, this Roman jailer is so transformed 
that Paul and Silas go from these inmates who are beaten and bruised to later he's washing their wounds. These inmates, Paul and Silas, or these people, Paul and Silas, they go from inmates to now Uncle Paul and Silas. You guys know what I mean when I say Uncle Paul and Silas, what I mean by that? At least in my culture, I'm sure in others, when you have a good friend of yours, you often tell your kids when you're introducing your, your, your friend to your kids, you'll say, this is uncle so-and-so, even if he's not related to you. You'll go and say, this is auntie so-and-so. Even if they're not related to you, just say, this is auntie or uncle so-and-so. You say, this is my dear friend that now I'm going to introduce my kid or this person to my kid as their uncle or aunt. Why? Because they are dear to me. Paul, I mean, uh, the Roman jailer does the same thing with Paul and Silas. They preach the gospel to him. He cleans their wounds, invites Paul and Silas over for dinner. Hey, kids, come meet Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas share the gospel with his whole family. Do you see the transformation aspect in this? He went from, these are enemies of the state. I must guard you with my life to now come and have dinner with me. Let me wash your wounds. I want to hear this gospel. Can you share this gospel with my family? See, that is transformation power. Inmates to Uncle Paul and Silas. You got to see that that is the power of God. That is the power of God that he goes and he just transforms a person to where they're totally new. So we're wondering how we're going to carry out this challenge that Jesus is giving to love those who don't deserve it. Maybe in our life we're feeling it has to be or it's going to be by the work of God. If you're wondering how it's going to happen, we're naturally not going to do this. I was uh, listening to a radio, uh, no, I was on YouTube, listening to a sermon, and a guy was talking about his grandmother, grandfather, who was going somewhere, and he got mugged and beat by a person. They caught the guy. The guy had already had two strikes, so he was going to jail, his third strike. So, I mean, he's going to jail for a minimum of 20, 25 years. And it says the, the grandfather or grandmother, after they're in the hospital, after they recovered, they started to correspond with the inmate and write them letters saying, I forgive you. Writing them. The person that almost took their life. Now they're writing letters to him. That is the transformational power of the gospel. That is, uh, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the only way we're going to live out any of these teachings that Jesus is saying in here is going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Outside of that, we're not going to do it. We're going to fall. Now, in our society, we often mistake, and the reason why that past Pastor Washington said that, we often mistake being transformed, meaning just going here from there, church to church, with being trans, uh, transferred, I'm sorry, with being transformed. We often, we, we, we miss that or mistake it because we confuse God's blessings, God's goodness, we confuse that to mean that we are in a right relationship with God. In other words, what I'm saying is we mistake God's common grace for the special favor of God that only comes to those who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. So you guys are looking lost. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. And I'll speak for myself largely. Before we encounter Jesus, 
We were walking around in this world thinking sometimes, at least me, I was okay with God. And the reason that I thought this way, and I know other people think that's this way, is because we would get into a few binds here and there, and we would get out of those different binds. So we would have different things going on in our life, and we would get a, a few breaks here and there. Maybe we lost a job, and God provided another job. Or, or maybe there was a bill that needed to be paid, and, and God paid that bill. Or maybe we were sick, and, and something happened. And because something good happened, we said, okay, one, there really is a God. God is real. Two, because these good things are happening to me, things that maybe I prayed about, it must mean that me and God are on good terms. And it must mean that I am a good person because God wouldn't be doing these things for me. See, that is why when we go and you go and share the gospel with people and you tell them that they are enemies of God, they look at you strange. Because they say, hold on, wait, I'm not an enemy of God. God just did these things to me. Look at all these blessings that I received. What do you mean that I am an enemy of God? But what we fail to understand in that mindset is one, that God's goodness should lead us to repentance, Romans 2, 4. And we also fail to understand the difference between God's common grace and God's special favor. Look at Matthew 5, 45. I want you to see this. What Jesus is showing us here, he's showing us God's common grace. God's common grace. I want you to see this here. Remember, he says, but I say to you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Look at 45. He says this. He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So what Jesus is saying here, if you had a believer who had a farm, and if you had an unbeliever, an atheist, a Buddhist, a Hindu, whoever had a farm, He's saying God allows his son to shine on both of their farms. He allows his rain to fall on both of their farms. God could have allowed only his rain to fall on the form of the believer. God could have only allowed his son to shine on the the side of the believer. But in his common grace... He allows his rain and his son to fall on both regardless. But he could have just allowed it to fall just on the believer. And I've seen an example of this kind of. Do you guys remember last week, the snowstorm in the Thomas, quote unquote? <laughs> there, there, was a, there was a snowstorm in the Thomas, right? A hailstorm, but it looked like snow. It was so much hell that my kids brought out their snow sled and they were going down our hill, sliding down. I got video of Serena and Nehemiah making snowballs and chasing each other. So there was snow in the Thomas. But if you go to my mom's house, literally driving five minutes away, you're driving and you see all white snow. And then you get to this one street and it's like a line of demarcation. You look on one side, it's all sunny green pastures. You look over here, it's like snowmageddon. It's all white. It's like if God said, snow, hell, whatever you want to call it, you're stopping right here. 
The point I'm getting is that God could have done that to believer or unbelievers with their form with whatever. But yet he chose to show common grace to all people, regardless whether they believed in him, whether they denied him or not. He still showed grace. He still showed. Remember, grace is something you don't deserve, right? Unbelievers who are none of us, we didn't deserve this, but yet God does it. He still allowed his son to rise and the, the rain to fall on the evil and the believer, the good and the not so good. He did it all. See, atheists, Muslims, guess what? They get healed from diseases too. It's called God's common grace. It's because God is good. Now, the problem is, the problem is when people try to live off of God's common grace. That is where the problem happens. The problems happen when we try to live off of God's common grace. And there actually, there's a term for those people. At least I'm attaching this term to them. Those people are called optimists. Some people say, I'm just an optimist. You're like, hold on, optimist just means positive, right? Somebody's, no, there, there are people that are just optimists. And they're optimists because they say, I went through something before and something good happened. Because something good happened before, I'm just going to be optimistic about the future that something good is going to happen again. There's no repentance when it comes to God. There's no true belief in God. Some of them don't even believe in God. But they just believe that things are just going to work out because they've worked out in the past. And they're believing that they're going to work out again in the future. See, they are banking on God's common grace. Because he didn't strike them down. Because he allowed the atheist atheist billionaire to get rich because he allowed that person who was a, a Buddhist to create the next app or whatever it may be. They believe in because this good favor has come to me that it's going to keep coming forward in the future. See, those are the people that are trying to live by common grace, that think that God is just doing often for the benefit of the church. It has even nothing to do with them. It is God just giving people ideas to benefit his people, to show his goodness, but they're banking on that and they're believing because things have worked out in the past, they're going to work out in the future. So they're trying to live off of God's common grace. But here's the problem with that. Here is the problem with that. Common grace ends at the grave. When you stand before God, there is no more common grace. Now it's, have you come to know my son Jesus or not? Have you repented of your sins? Sure, you can live by common grace all you want. But when you die and you stand before God, there is no more common grace. It is, have you encountered and came into a relationship with my son Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned and now sucked the righteousness and the things of God? That is the only thing that's going to matter. Sure, you can lie on common grace here on this earth. Becoming grace ends at the grave. The atheist billionaire will have to stand before God. The unbelieving millionaire will have to eventually stand before God and give an account for their life. You can't rely on common grace forever. You have to have trusted in Christ, repented of your sins. Now, while we can't live off common grace, Jesus is charging us in the text to demonstrate common grace. We can't live off of it, but he is charging us in this text to demonstrate common grace. Meaning that our love has to be common, meaning given to all. 
regardless whether they've done something to us or not. Regardless whether they deserve it or not, whether they are an enemy or not, whether they're Republican and I'm Democrat, whether they're gay or straight, whether they believe in another faith or not, we are supposed to show love to all people. Our love, our grace should be common. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs is. It doesn't matter how you view. When it comes to meeting needs, when it comes to showing love, our love, our grace should be common, meaning for all. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what ethnicity. It doesn't matter if you're American or immigrant. It matters that you are made in the Imago Day, that you're made in the image of God. And because of that, we show a love, a self-sacrificing love to regardless, whoever it may be. So we demonstrate common grace. As Christ is sin, the Father demonstrates common grace. We show love to all people regardless. Remember, this is not the knockoff love. Jesus said this is agape love. This is self-sacrificing love. He said this is what we do. And this is why I look at this text and I say, God, where is the loophole? You really can't mean this, Jesus. Again, in my flesh, I want a loophole. I want an exemption. I want an exemption for that bad mother or father who walked out on their child. Surely, God, you don't, they don't deserve common grace. They don't deserve common mercy. I, I want an exemption for that husband or wife who has been faithful for their husband for years and years and that husband or wife and goes off and commits adultery. I'm saying, surely, God, they don't deserve mercy and grace. Surely there has to be an exemption in this text, God. But there is no exemption. Jesus said we are to be perfect or complete as our Father is complete. There are no exemptions, my brothers and sisters, and that's what makes this text so difficult. You can't pick and choose. You can't just give your love to the deserving. I'm sorry, there's, there are no exemptions in this text. And the truth of the matter is, we really don't want there to be an exemption. Because if love only goes to the the deserving, if grace only goes to the deserving, if mercy only goes to the deserving, then guess what? You and I would not be saved. We don't want an exemption. Because if we want an exemption, then there can be an exemption with God, and we would not get in. We would not know the Lord. We, We don't want there to be an exemption. Because if there was an exemption, guess what? You and I would still be sleeping around. You and I would still be hitting the club. You and I would still be getting blooded. You and I would still be drinking. You and I would still be into pornography. You and I would still be stealing. You and I would still be getting high off our pride. If there was an exemption, we would still be doing the same things that we've done before. But because there is not an exemption, because God's grace is coming, because his love is so big, he saves us. Regardless of what we have done, regardless of what we were doing, thank God that his love and grace and mercy, that there was no exemptions in it. Because if there were, you wouldn't even be hearing these words from me right now. I would still be chasing the skirt. I would still be thinking about what party I'm going to, what drink we're going to drink how my clothes look would be reading scripture. I thank God for the no exemption clause. I thank God in the scripture that there is no fine print 
that says, no, you, you can't get in. I thank God there is no fine print that even accepts broken sinners like you and I. And Jesus said, you ought to do the same. You ought to show love, just like your father is showing love. Persecution, regardless, show love. Agape love. So, with that said, I want us to prepare our hearts for prayer because this imperative that God is putting on us is very difficult and it's impossible to do with man. We need God to do his work. So, when we go in prayer, please cry out to prayer. And can, can we do this? Matter of fact, when I go into prayer, I know this is a little different. When we go into prayer, please pray out loud when we're going to go into prayer. And pray and, and ask God to help you live this out because this is not easy. This is so difficult and challenging. And I just like, Jesus, this makes zero sense to me. People that hurt my family, you still want me to love them? And agape love, give them food and water. I don't want to do that in my flesh. So let's just go into prayer and ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to help us to live this out because we just don't want to do this naturally. So let us pray. And I pray that you can just pray right now with me. Please pray. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for your word, Lord Jesus. God, it's this word is challenging, God. It is challenging, Lord Jesus, to carry this out. God, I need your spirit. We need your spirit to live this out, Lord. God, help us to just show compassion to people that really get us mad and upset when we don't want to, where we want to be vengeful. Lord God, help us to love them like you said. We ought to love them, God. Put a agape type love in our spirit, Lord God, to love these people regardless of the circumstances, Lord. God, let it be real love, God, not knock off love, God, not works-based love, God, not outward manifesting, God, but let our hearts really burn. Let our hearts have compassion for those who maybe we have normally not got along with or normally we don't agree with God help us to be like you in all circumstances Lord Jesus God all throughout this teaching Lord God these are hard teachings Jesus it scares me God because I'm like I can't measure up but this seems so difficult Lord but this is teaching me to look to you Jesus so I'm praying God help me to live this out help this church God to live this out God to not just be hearers of your word God but doers of your word Jesus God, help my pride as it's rising up inside of me right now, Lord God. Oh, Lord God, let this be about your word. Let this be about you. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, meet us here, Lord. Holy Spirit, meet us here. Help us to leave this place transformed, ready to be lights in this world, God. To be seed, to be sought, Lord God. To water, Lord Jesus. Help us, God. Help us to live this life out, Lord. Help us to live out loud, Lord. By your Spirit. Presence, Lord. This is our prayer, God. We can't do this work without you. It's our prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.